Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCB. 
102.3 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Uh, joining us tonight, we have an author that's written a new book called Under a Full Moon, The Last Lynching in Kansas, uh, Alice K. Hill. So thank you for being here, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. So, Alice, this is great. That's quite the title. Now, this book just came out, I believe, on June 30th this year. Um, now, tell us a, a little bit about how you got onto this subject and writing this book. Well, there's quite a bit of background involved in it. Uh, originally, the story of the last lynching in Kansas came to me through my grandmother, I spent summers in Atwood, Kansas with my grandmother, and as a warning, she told us not to ever get into a car with a stranger, never to take candy from a stranger, that type of warning, and she explained to us that in years past, there had been a little girl from the community, not that particular town, but, but a nearby community, who had been kidnapped and brutalized and killed by a man that uh, had offered her something to, to entice her into his car. Well, that story stayed in my mind all through my life, of course. And in 2002, we purchased the 1907 Shirley Opera House, which was a, a falling apart building with great potential. And one of the things that we wanted to do was uh, see this building listed on the Kansas Historic Registry, and so that required a lot of research. And as I was researching for that, I came across a reference that this very same little girl that my grandmother had told me about had been served a meal just an hour or so before her final death. And that caught my attention, and I felt... Well, how, what a coincidence to, to actually be in the same space as that little girl had been, and it intrigued me enough that I wanted to find out more. And that is what launched the uh, long process of writing this book. I was going to say, you know, um, I've written a few books myself, and I know there's quite a bit of work. I, I've never done something with a case this long ago, and I believe this was in 1932, um, so you, you, you've had to reach back, and so there's very few witnesses still alive and things like that. So uh, how long does it take to do something like that? Well, you have to understand I was living a very busy life while I was trying to develop this story, and so for many years I just went after it whenever I could, but I was, I was serious about it, and I could not. I felt compelled to write it. And what's even more interesting is that the story really begins in 1881 uh, because what I wanted to do was find out to unravel why these people's lives crossed when they did in 1932. So one of the first things that I uh, discovered was that Richard Reed, his, his full name was Pleasant Richardson Reed, he was a repeat offender and he had been incarcerated in the Colorado Penitentiary for uh, for a 
previous rape in 1916. And that was the first I'd heard that he had any kind of other criminal background. So we, during Christmas break, we went to Denver, and I went to the archives and requested information, and I was then sent a photograph of his prison uh, uh, intake photo. When I saw his photograph, that completely changed my whole perspective of what this story was was going to reveal to me because when I saw his eyes, I, I felt that his story was just as integral as the little girl's story. In fact, I found out more so. And that's, that was, um, so then, you know, talk about going back in time, I, I went clear back to 1881 when he first arrived in Kansas as a child. Wow. Um, and that, that the pattern for the whole book was each of the primary characters, there are seven families that I focused on, and for each of those seven families, I went back to when did they first arrive in northwest Kansas, how did their paths ultimately cross in this final event in 1932. Yeah, and I know when you're doing something in history like that, um, so many people nowadays living their lives with you know smartphones and internet and everything that we have now don't realize what it was like to live in let's say Kansas or anywhere in the US in 1881 so that must be quite the process and that must be because you have to talk about that through the book so people understand certainly certainly and and that plays a very big part in the development of Richard Reed's character the isolation, the deprivation, the hardships, um, and western Kansas, northwest Kansas, um, there are not very many people in that area. There never have been. So being isolated out there was, uh, it was a given. Uh, the, the summers are extremely hot, dry, we're a semi-arid area. The winters can be extremely cold with raging blizzards. The wind blows all the time. It's very hard to raise crops, and that was all that they came to do was to was to farm. That was the that was what brought these people to the area. Uh, so it was it was extremely hard. Disease was a huge issue. Um, so and that was one of the things I tried to capture in these personal stories is each of these families struggles to to make a go of it, and uh, it, it was an interesting process to take them from the beginning clear to the final final stages. So so from the 1881, when you start with uh, Richard Reed, and you take him right up until um, he um, rapes and kills the eight-year-old girl here, um, I think, what, the Dorothy Hunter. Um, so could you see a process happening with him where he was becoming more and more the type of person that would do something like this? Well, when my grandmother first told us the story, I asked her, why? Why would a man do that to a little girl? I, could, I so identified with this, this little child who was trusting, and she said, well, he was retarded and didn't know any better. So that clue stayed with me as I 
begin this process. And when I received the photograph of him, one of the things I noticed immediately was that he had a scar um, on the back of his head behind his ear that had a curve, and it looked very, to me, very much like it could have been caused by uh, a, a horse hoof being kicked in the head. So that gave me another possible clue of why would this man be retarded? Well, traumatic brain injury could certainly be a, a, a viable explanation. And I also felt that his whole demeanor, um, in, in many of the accounts, of the newspaper accounts, they called him the ape man, they called him the, the Kansas monster. Uh, people referred to him as having extraordinarily long arms and being a threatening appearance. Uh, but any time a person is set apart for whatever reason, perhaps they're slow mentally, perhaps they have a mental illness, perhaps they have a deformity or a disability, whenever they're set apart from the herd, that causes even more isolation. And that throughout the book, that was the pattern I followed, was that he was perhaps developmentally delayed and um, with the traumatic brain injury, he couldn't fit into the normal social uh, gatherings and he became more and more isolated. And both of his events uh, were opportunistic events. They were not planned. And I'll, I'll explain that by saying that when he picked up the little girl, little Dorothy Hunter, he was on his way home from another town, and the town he was coming from was to the east. He was driving west, and his town of Rexford was further west. But as he was driving through the town of Selden, which is where she lived, she just happened to be on the road at that time. He wasn't stalking her. He wasn't intending this to occur. He just happened to pick her up that day. So it wasn't as though he was a predator or serial killer. It, I just think he was, he was lonely, and he had no normal outlet for relationships. But then there was also a bootleg liquor, the, the moonshine bootleg liquor involved, which causes, of course, a, a whole other level of mental aberration to occur. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's it's strange how that um, how it works now. And also back then, I guess in 1932, of course, um, they didn't treat mental illness uh, like something they wanted to fix, right? It was sort of uh, they just didn't really pay attention to someone that was was as they would call retarded. Absolutely. In fact, that continued on clear into. Oh, much, much later, one of the most interesting coincidences in writing this book, and many of these things uh, um, revealed themselves as I was writing the book. I, I didn't know them before. Uh, my husband and I and daughters worked as, we were called family teachers, for a program that worked with developmentally delayed adults. And one of our clients that we took care of, we lived in the same home with them, was a, was a man named Ed McGinley. Well, it turns out that Ed McGinley was the grandson 
of the sheriff who arrested um, Richard Reed in 1932. Um, so I have a very close relationship with the man we took care of. He was had he had a dual diagnosis, mental disability and, and mental retardation, and he had been put into an institution um, very young in life and was not taken back out of that institution until he was a, an adult. That was the norm. If you had a child who was born with Down syndrome or any type of disability, there was no special ed programs. There was nothing to help them. They just were... The families were told, pretend they never were born, and they were put in institutions, and it was it was an abusive system for for a long, long time. So yes, if 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 a child back in the in the 1920s, 1910s, they, if they were born on the farm with a disability, they were just hidden, more or less. Yeah, so they're almost like house housed them. They're babysat them by putting them in places like that. That wasn't there to help them, really. Right, right. There was no treatment program. They were just incarcerated, <laughs> put in a prison for for having done nothing wrong except to being odd or different. Wow. So now, you, so before this 1932 case, you you mentioned there was. He had he had been a repeat offender. So what exactly had he done before this? Well, in 1916, he was homesteading in eastern Colorado, uh, which is just a little further west than the than the northwest Kansas area that most of the book is about. And they had opened up uh, a, some more homesteading options in that area. And so he was a bachelor uh, farmer. He was out there homesteading on his 160 acres, and ne next to him was a Russian-German settlement. This group of people had fled Russia uh, to avoid having to be, um, oh, you know, uh, what do I want to say, drafted into the war. They, they, they had been promised when they lived in Russia that they would never have to do that, and that changed, the political climate changed. So they came to America and set up a settlement which was very isolated. They were, um, they were there because of their religion, and they tried not to involve themselves in the outside world. But his land bordered right up against it. And this young woman, Pauline Weishar, she was not quite 16 years old. She was out herding cattle, and he came upon her and molested her terribly. We don't have any specific details, but uh, we do know that it was significant. The community of men there were going to lynch him, but the local sheriff was able to take him away from the, the lynch mob at that time, and within less than 24 hours, he was in the penitentiary in, in Canyon City, Colorado. So he had a he had a pattern of attacking young women. Now, she was closer to his age at that time than the 1932 event. In 1932, he was 53 years old, and the little girl was eight. Uh, so there was a, a much wider age span. Uh, but in, in the 1916 
period of time he was much closer to the to the age of the young young girl hmm. so so what how did he get out of prison then like he got put put in the penitentiary was it just a short sentence or what did they do well it it, it, it was, again, uh, historically significant. There was some prison reform occurring in Colorado, and the book explains that more towards the end of the, of the book during the, and there's some reference parts in the back. But there was a prison reform program going on, and they had a uh, time uh, reduced for good behavior, and he was what they considered a model prisoner. And within a short period of time, he was released much sooner than he should have been. The other issue is he should never have been sent back to Kansas without any kind of heads up to the community. But he was put on a train and sent back to his hometown, and nobody seemed to be aware that he had committed this crime, or at least there was nothing, no references in the newspaper, and I scoured the newspapers looking for something. The... Uh, the only thing it, that it mentioned is that he had arrived back in Rexford on a certain date, and then there were references to jobs that he held after that. So did, when he went back to Kansas, was he with his family, his parents still? Or were... Yes, he, he, he returned back to his family farm. Uh, I do know that he did some outside work and traveled with harvest crews for a period of time, and then he returned back home um, not long before 1932, um, and so he was he was living at home when the final event occurred. Well, his parents and family must have known um, what what he was in prison for the first time, right? Oh yes, yes, they would have known. They would have known, but I'm certain that they did not. Yeah, talk about it yeah, at all. <laughs> it's not not bragging, right, Sarah? Um, no, did, no. No, and it's interesting you mentioned bragging because his father was something of a, and I use this word loosely, but a braggart. He, many of the newspaper uh, articles, and newspapers back then were just full of social tidbits, and he became quite um, well known in the community because of his horses. He was a, he was a um, horse doctor. He was an auctioneer. He rose up in the community as something of a, of a braggart and a man who liked to have his name in the paper. And he would brag about his other children, but Richard was never even mentioned. If they had a family gathering, say, say Mama had a birthday and all of the children were listed in the, in the little social clip, even though Richard was there at home, his name was left off. So it was very telling. Yeah. Wow, wow, yeah, that that's got to be. I, I'd imagine his other uh, brothers or sisters would have treated him poorly as well. I I think I believe you're absolutely right on that. Wow. So did he ever get married or get a regular girlfriend or anything during any of this time? Not that not I know I know that he was never married. I do not assume that he had any kind of relationships. Um, a local relationship at all. Wow. So so now the event happens, he, uh, he, he attacks and kills this girl. How did they figure it was him? Well, there's quite an interesting story how, and it was one of the things that intrigued me so much. He, he picked her up on the, on the road 
she and her sister were, were going home from school. It was the last day of school, and she, her sister, and a friend were walking home, and she realized, Dorothy realized, she had left her lunch pail back at the school. So she went back to get it, and they never saw her again. So middle afternoon, she's walking back on, towards home, and he picks her up, and she gets in the car with him, willingly or unwillingly, we don't know, but but I I'm assuming willingly, and she they travel around all night long. They are driving up and down the country roads. Um, the next time they are seen is uh, north of Atwood. They ran out of gas, and a farmer gives them some gas and tells them how to get into town. They go into town, and he takes her for a mid-morning early breakfast or late breakfast, early lunch in the opera house, the, the building that we currently own. And she was seen with him by numerous people in the cafe. And when questioned, the, the only comments that were recorded were, we didn't know anything was wrong. They, they didn't see that there was anything wrong. So all night long he had been with her. He, he could not have done anything too horrible to her or it would have been more obvious and then he put her back in the car and they started back south of town and within less than an hour he had brutally brutally raped and murdered her he he uh, it, was, it was pretty atrocious what he did and then he buried her in a in a straw stack however he then went back into the the uh, went to the sheriff's office in Thomas County and turned himself in. <laughs> it's it, the uh, the final chapters tell. Uh, I mean, it's almost it's horribly comical what happened at the end. But he confessed. I mean, it, it, he he basically confessed. He was all mixed up. He was confused, but he said that he had done it. Wow. So if he did that, I wonder if he. Um was able to feel guilt and remorse about it then well he he blamed it on liquor he said if I hadn't had liquor it wouldn't have happened um, so again that that bootleg liquor was it was it was rampant in that area and well everywhere it was prohibition and there was there was corn was worthless as far as a commodity crop but it could certainly be turned into a marketable item if you if you had a still in your backyard or in your barn <laughs> yeah it's, it's amazing you know uh the law trying to do one thing and so people just go around it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow so so okay so he he confesses they they've got him in jail um but now this is really kind of the uh, a different turnout uh, and i know when i first saw the title of the book last lynching in Kansas, I was totally expecting something different out of this book. It sort of, it, 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 the whole thing just it surprised me. So, but eventually, um, the people decide that they want to hang them themselves. That's exactly right. Uh, again, many factors play into this. One is this is a small, a community of. of small towns and with with these 
folks. These were farmers and ranchers. They were used to dealing with life and death issues. Now, none of them were vigilante types at all. But if there was a rabid coyote, it was a dead rabid coyote. If there was a rattlesnake in the yard, it was a dead rattlesnake. They knew how to take care of predators. And they just knew this was a time when they could not count on the justice system. They were going to take care of it themselves. It, uh, it, it really makes a lot of sense in the bigger picture. The, um, the governor of Kansas at that time had vetoed a capital punishment bill because he said, even though everybody was in favor of capital punishment in Kansas, he said, we don't have enough money for the, an electric chair, so why have capital punishment in Kansas? So he, he had vetoed it. That set the, the, the tone that justice wasn't going to be served by legal man, matters. So so they just took it upon themselves and said, we're done with this man. He's, he's out of here. Um, now, the, it's interesting how he ended up where he was. They did not pull him out of the jail where he should have been held. They, the uh, sheriff of Thomas County, sensing what was going to happen, relocated him to a much smaller community to the west. He should have been taken to Topeka. He should have been taken somewhere to a, to a more structured facility. Instead, they took him west to a very, very small town, and then it was leaked where he, where he was being taken. So it was just a matter of a few hours, and they had him, they had him pulled out of there and, and hanging from a tree. Wow, that's that's pretty incredible. So, uh, so when they did something like that, um, did anybody pay for that? Like, so uh, uh, there was a lot of people obviously involved in order to take take out the the policeman and 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 take um, Mr. Reed and hang him and all this stuff. There was not just one person. Um, Certainly, but, but was was anybody held accountable for this? This was one of the other factors is that there was a code of secrecy because, of course, lynching was a criminal act, and every one of the people involved could have been arrested for, for murder. So it was highly important that nobody ever said who was there. Now, the, the community where Dorothy came from, that was Sheridan County, uh, she lived in the town of Selden. Many of the people who went to uh, Cheyenne County, which is two counties to the west, were from the Sheridan County area and would not have been known to the people in in Cheyenne County. However, there were people who knew who it was. Um, there were probably people from Thomas County as well involved, but nobody ever said no one ever spoke up. Now, part of uh, the characters that I have in here is a man who was an actual attendee of the lynching, and I had an uh, interview from, uh, that had been recorded uh, that he had given many years ago. He's, he, he's deceased now, but I had that, a copy of his interview explaining what happened, and that, to me, was more 
um, accurate than anything I might have read in the newspapers. The newspapers certainly sensationalized it, said there were thousand people, and I knew that couldn't be the case. I just knew common sense in that area. It didn't. It didn't make any sense. And he, one of his first comments was, "You'll read a lot of things, but I know what happened. I was there." Wow. So that was that was very helpful to me to get a sense of what that event really felt like. So do you think the police let it happen, or were they involved in it, or because they're part of the community, and it's a small community, um, everybody knows everybody, so do you think that the um, officer in charge was involved somehow? Um, he, he was, he, the, the story was that he had a gun put to his head and was forced to release Richard Reed from the jail. Um, the, the eyewitness said there were no guns involved. So it, there's, of course, uh, the, the law officials, they could certainly have been prosecuted fully if they had been involved. So their, their story had to be that they were forced. Um, and the only people who would know is, are the ones who were actually there. Um, but here's an important point, too, uh, is that the sheriff that was in, in charge of the Cheyenne County Courthouse he was a small man, um, about 5'3", I believe, and he had been the janitor before he became the sheriff. Oh. He, had no, he had no training, of, and, and that's typical in small communities. If there's a job opening, you're just willing to give it a whirl, and it, there, he, had, he had no, oh, no, you know, no, not, no. nothing official. Yeah, and no real training, I'm sure. No, no, he just was there to, you know, make sure that if a cat got up the tree, somebody was there to help them out. Yeah, I bet you there wasn't a whole lot of uh, crime that he had to deal with there. No, no, certainly not not in St. Francis, Kansas. And so he was completely unprepared to face a mob wanting to take a man like this out of his jail. I wonder if you uh, if you would think that um, perhaps just the way the community community interacted with themselves and what their beliefs and lifestyles were like at that time, I wonder if that really kind of was part of the why he did what he did or why the whole thing happened. I'm not sure I understand what well, you're... Well, uh, just, just, just the way that um, he grew up, what he had to live with, the way the family treated him. And I'm, I'm not giving him a scapegoat, but I'm just saying that I just wonder if the whole community... Because they probably all treated him much the same as the, you know, the retarded child type thing or something like that. Um, Absolutely. Oh, yes, I, I fully agree with you that... that one of the points that I tried to make in this book, and, and this was based on, on um, experts in the field, that if you, have, if you have no outlet at all, if you are basically an invisible person in your social standing, if, if you are ignored or worse, you know, made to feel like you shouldn't have ever been born, you're going to act out in some manner. You just will. You'll either, if you're brave enough, you'll kill yourself. If you're not brave enough, you are going to act out in some way 
and that's probably going to be in a violent manner. So I do believe that he was not by nature a brutal man. I believe that he was frustrated, horribly lonely, angry, uh, but not intending to be violent until you put alcohol into the picture. And when alcohol came in and if he had a traumatic brain injury and had difficulty with impulse control, which frequently happens with traumatic brain injuries, things would happen and he wouldn't even know he had done them. Yeah. And that's, that's, because his, his confession is so rambling and so confused. And, the, and the, when he turned himself in originally to, it was to the deputy, the deputy said he could smell strong alcohol on him and he told him just go home and sleep it off and he did not he did not know that there was a child missing at that time the deputy didn't um it didn't take them very long to find out and then of course he was the first person they went after um wow but yeah i i agree totally and that's that is the whole thrust and the whole theme of the book my goal i did not want to i didn't want to bring up a lot of horrible information for people to read without a reason. And the reason was, well, I was a school nurse for many years, and I saw the child who was, you know, maybe they weren't the prettiest kid. Maybe they were kind of fat. Maybe they had a limp. Maybe they weren't very smart. Whatever it was that set them apart, their lives were pretty darn miserable, even with all of the social supports that are in place now. And if you had nobody looking out for you, nobody putting a hand on your shoulder saying, you're a good kid, you're all right, then what are you going to do with yourself except do something wrong? Yeah, yeah, it's really too bad. Um, how did his family um, manage after this um, lynching of, of their son? Well, his parents were elderly, and they both passed away fairly soon after after that occurred, within just a few years. Uh, there are no reeds left in that area. Um, I do, in the back of the, the, at the end of the book, I do account for all of the family members where they're, at, as much as I could uh, determine uh, without uh, huge detail, I just wanted some closure for each of the family members. <laughs> you didn't give your, their, na- their uh, address and phone numbers. <laughs> Well, no, and of course, you know, this has been 80-some years ago that that event occurred, so, you know, we're talking an extended length of time. However, there are certainly family members, uh, cousins and descended cousins of of the families in the area, and I, I, I do so hope I have not caused anybody any hardship from writing this, um, but I, I just felt compelled to tell this story when I saw his photograph oh I just uh, there was no choice so for almost 17 years I kept working on it and uh, it, it it wouldn't leave me and I and I I'm so pleased um, the Wild Blue Press said they were interested in seeing it published because it's it's really um I believe it is an important book not just historically although there's there's a tremendous amount of history in there but i believe psychosocially this book it it may have a positive impact 
who knows when and how, but that's my my hope. Well, so um, so what is that kind of it? So when someone buys your book and they take it home and read it and uh, finish, what is it that you hope that they take away from the book? What is what is the key element? Well, it, I think maybe if I can pull this up very quickly here, uh, my closing statement is, if you are impacted by the story, do not turn away if you suspect a child is in danger of physical or emotional abuse. Opportunities that might have altered the events leading to the last lynching in Kansas were presented but allowed to slip past for all the typical reasons. These opportunities are before us as well. Do not be party to ridicule and estrangement from society, those we deem odd. Your kindness may be their only soft hand. Your acknowledgement of their existence may save lives. That's that's my goal. I want them, uh, because it's so easy to be part of the, the pecking order. It's so easy to laugh when somebody is odd instead of saying, standing up for them. It's much harder to stand up for them. So I'm hoping everybody will stand up for those who are being downtrodden. Yeah, and it's part of um, it, it. Kind of passes on, you know. I, uh, you know, I grew up in the '60s. Um, I'm in my late '50s now, and um, uh, you know, I was autistic. I am autistic, and so back then in the '60s, um, if anything, I was considered kind of maybe a bad kid, or um, uh-huh. maybe maybe ignored. Um, but when you're treated that way then the ones that are weaker than you, you pass that treatment on. Absolutely right. It does. It, it, it um, perpetuates a, a terrible, wicked cycle. Well, so you truly do understand the, the magnitude of, of being slightly outside of the, the herd. And um, some people have great compensation tools, and some people have one person in their life that gives them that strength to do to stay centered with themselves uh, but if you don't have that that compensation or those those one or two people it's easy for for things oh. to go badly oh totally uh, totally actually for for me it's always been my dog <laughs> oh and there and there that's very true too animals are so hugely therapeutic they they certainly are no, I, I, I think that uh, I think that we see it. Every one of us sees these potential moments in our lives pretty frequently, and the majority of the time we look the other way, just as you say, ignore. But we we must step up. We must take that initiative and say, hmm, I I think something's wrong here. I'm gonna yeah. I'm going to step and you might be wrong. You might be you might be mistaken, and you can apologize and say, gosh, I'm really sorry. I you know, but mm. so much better to have at least tried to intervene if needed. I think for the most part, I was I was ignored. It, it, it just uh, when um, you know trying to look forward and try to say that I want to be on radio, of course, was I was told that's just not going to happen, <laughs> <laughs> or I was I was going to be able to write books. That's just not going to happen. You know, this you're not the type you're not going to be able to do that. So that's kind of how my parents took toward me. And so I understood the rejection, but at the same time, uh, I was very comfortable in my own mind. 
Good and, for you. And it took a long time for it to work its way out, but it did. Um, so, and I think autism is better now. People tend to be more more receptive to it um, and um, more helpful. Uh, oh, but, absolutely. But back then, no, no, because if you didn't, if you didn't answer, you were just being, you know, a, a smart kid, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's all. yeah. So, so that's just yeah. kind of the, the, the they. It was almost like they weren't really aware of it. They weren't. There was again, people had no background training for this. Um, as a school nurse, one of the uh, one of my major roles was to help educate the teachers as to what a spectrum disorder might look like and how can they best manage so that their classroom number one isn't interrupted too much and number two that this young student gets what they need um it's it's usually not that hard but it's fear people are afraid of what they don't know and if they don't know they will make they'll either ignore or they'll make they'll do a gut reaction thing which is usually wrong um no, I, I'm, I, you are exactly right. You were able to compensate for yourself well enough. Good for, good for you. You yeah. proved them all wrong, huh? <laughs> yeah, it took, took long enough, but I did it, you know, and it's still, yeah. it's still a lot of work. People don't realize that um, I have to spend a lot of time learning to speak. It's, it's really an unusual thing to say, and it's come a long way, but there's certain things I have to really practice at. Um, to get good enough to do something so it's it but you know i mean i i was the kid that uh didn't learn to ride a bike till i was almost 16 okay so, oh gosh that's so hard when everybody else is whirring down the road at seven exactly yeah, yeah. it's so so it's just strange little things like that but again the the world didn't pick up on it they just thought i was you know whatever they, they i don't even think they thought to to find out why I was slow, no. you know. No, things like dyslexia. Dyslexia was undiagnosed. Um, all of those areas of learning disabilities. Even you know, you could be highly, highly intelligent, but if you didn't fit into their their little mold, it just was very hard. Hmm. Goodness sakes! Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's all good. It's all good, but I don't. I I really don't look bad back at that time. Um, with anger or real negativity, it just was what it was, and I'm okay with it. Um, I just had what I had to work with and moved forward. And Great. you know, a lot of people don't have that kind of um, strength or, or, I guess, desire or something to do that. And I understand it. It's easier to stay within yourself. You know, uh, yeah. people. Yeah. Do, you know, people can do some real awful things. So. Um, yeah, that's not as you know. Uh, you know, one thing I, I picked up on this and is that this was the last lynching. So, uh, uh, was lynching a common thing um, at that time? Not, not in no, not in the 1930s. Though certainly not prior to that. You know, the the days of settlement, early settlement, the 1880s and and in thereabouts. There, there were quite a few. Uh, sometimes it was horse thief, or sometimes it was a claim, you know, um, somebody trying to steal somebody's homestead claim. Um, in the research I did, there is a book uh, written by, just one second, and I'll look at that, uh, 
lynchings in Kansas from 1850 to 1932, written by Harriet C. Frazier, and she does make reference to the to the last lynching in 1932. But she covers, I think there was maybe a hundred or so in that book that she covers. Uh, frequently they were people of, of color or other nationalities that were considered um, not, they didn't want them in their community overnight, that kind of a thing. Uh, but some of them were criminals. Uh, so, but, it, but by 1932, no, this was, this was an uncommon event. And, and there were none after that, at least none <laughs> publicly recorded anywhere. So. <laughs> none that we talk about. That's you know, yes, unfortunate. Yes. Um, well, great. So where do you, where, so where do you plan to go with this? Like, um, are you going to be doing more writing and more history writing, or are you just sort of this is kind of it? Well, this this was certainly the biggest one for me, and none will ever take this much longer because I'm in a different place in life and can focus. I do have some things in the works. I don't quite know which one will pop up onto the top and and come out next, but uh, there is another local history story, uh, a, a true crime event in that same county that's intriguing, but I don't know that there's a a bigger theme or if it's just a, a one-off event and I, I, I don't want to write just to be writing I feel like it needs to have a purpose and a, have some value some long-standing universal value to it so we'll see I don't, I don't know exactly what will happen but well, that's good. I, I don't think I'm done <laughs> no. well, I do have one other I, I do have one other book I published this one's completely different uh, it's, it was self-published um, I, I'm an avid gardener and a strong believer in local food production and one of the saddest things is that our rural agricultural communities do not feed themselves at all we're completely reliant on corporate food trucks and uh, and where we live now there's not even a grocery store it's it's a it's a terrible crime that's happened in the america's heartland of breadbasket you know what they call us but i wrote a book called grow topless and it's a modified design for a high tunnel to help protect your garden from from the wind and the hail and the all of the things that try to eat up your garden. So that that one's available also in on Amazon, but it it was just self published a year ago. Hmm. Do you have a website then, or do you just? Uh... I, I do. I have a I, I have akhillauthor dot com. Fantastic. So, yeah, it's strange how how the world's changing around us and how things are becoming very different. Like you were saying, no, don't feed yourself and stuff. It's strange when um, some things seem to make so much sense to do, but we don't do it. Oh, we are we are in real trouble with our food supply in America, and people don't know it at all because we have an abundance of food almost anywhere but this this year has really awakened folks to how fragile that system is um, it, it, and my husband and I we we farmed in western Kansas for 40 some years and we've seen a complete change from from self excuse me self sustainability to almost 100% monocrop chemically grown foods 
it's all corn, um, cattle feed. Uh, there, there's no real food being grown out here anymore, and it's a it's a terrible shame. Um, and tons and tons of chemicals being put on our our lands all around us, either through aerial sprays or ground rigs. Um, it's a serious situation, and I and I hope someday, very quickly, there's a big turnaround. But I, I'm I'm not too hopeful. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not hopeful at all. So <laughs> just uh, you know, I I'm, not, say that. I'm not going to jump on and say, oh no, it's going to be good. No, I you know, no. I I don't know. I don't know that it there, is. There is a strong movement for for local food and homesteading, but it's more in the urban areas and the rural areas where we are actually got the greatest potential. We are totally forgotten. When, when my husband and I started, we, we got married in 1975, um, he is a fifth-generation Kansas farmer. Our grandchildren are seven generations now. But there were, there were 3% of the nation were, were family farmers. We are now at less than half a percent of the entire nation. And mm. they, we don't even count on the census anymore. Oh. Uh, I think that's a pretty big statement. <laughs> oh, it is. It's it's terrible. I, you know, I um, I, I I don't I don't know what to say. I'm just I, I think um, we're losing the uh, ability to focus on the important things, and yeah. and we're we're focused on all this stuff that really shouldn't and doesn't matter. And we're mesmerized with sports or <laughs> whatever, uh, you know. Yeah. It, like, it get focused on what we do as a society and get try to make it better, you know. But, yeah. you know, I I I preach that all the time, but nobody listens. <laughs> so, you know, and well, I'm, I'm, I, I've been stuck in Canada. I'm not stuck. I, I enjoyed it actually since before this. Um, I have a house up in, in in Western Canada, and so I was up here before the pandemic hit and the cancel of flights, so we do everything out of the studio up here. And um, you know what? Outside looking in, you start to learn a lot of things about uh, where you live and what the world thinks about it. That's very interesting. How insightful that is for you um, to have a whole other perspective it's crazy to watch and to live in a different country that, and the way they um, talk about what's going on in the U.S. And actually, um, sometimes it's pretty embarrassing. Um, oh, it it doesn't surprise <laughs> me at all. <laughs> I just don't know what to say. You know, it just oh, I'm, I'm just kind of like wow. Um, yeah, I just I you know, there's just no words. So no, there anyway. aren't. No, no. Well, but it's been a pleasure. What we're going to do is we'll have uh, you up on our website. We'll have your book. Okay. People can do one click and pick up the book anytime they listen. So awesome. uh, the book we're talking about is Under a Full Moon, The Last Lynching in Kansas. And our guest has been the author, Alice K. Hill. Thank you for being here. Oh, I so appreciate it. Oh, I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure visit visiting with you. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage 
The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.